look like? We see a good indication of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The promises he's referring to goes back to the previous chapter. In verse 18, God had made the promise that if they separate themselves from those of the world and idolatry and anything sinful, then God gives the promise He will be a father to them. And it's a great promise. He says, since you have that promise, then you need to keep up your end of the bargain. You need to separate from anything sinful. And, and I like that phrase, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is, don't just strive to be a little good. Don't just strive to do it half-heartedly or somewhat and leave some undone. Try to abstain from every form of evil and get rid of any selfishness, any worldliness. Don't fit in with the world. Be the salt, be the light, be God's holy people and do that to its full completion. Don't go halfway. Verse 2, he says, Receive us. We have wronged no man. We've corrupted no man. We've defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. Here Paul is saying, open your heart to me as I'm opening it to you. And you can see the love of Paul in these words. And when I read these words, one thing that I come away with is that many times we are way, way too much focused on ourselves we think of what we want and what we what's good for us and we're thinking in that physical way too much and what Paul is doing is he cares about these brethren and he cares about Titus and he wants his well-being and he not only that you can see that his anticipation of Titus's uh condition is that his anxiety and, his, and the pressure and what he felt was not towards worldly things and, and material things. It was towards his brethren, whether his brethren are right with God and whether Titus is okay. Now, he had troubles on every way, and he had inner anguish as well, but yet what he says is, he, he has joy. And I think this is interesting when he talks about the comfort and joy that he had in both them and Titus, when, especially considering this church and, and all the things that he's been confronting in verse, both the first and the second letter, is you don't find a man who, while that 
the church had some difficulties and splinters. I don't sense that Paul had any kind of ill will or animosity about any of that. Paul is simply confronting the problems because he cares about them. He's not confronting these problems because he gets some sick pleasure out of confronting. Paul confronts them because he wants them to be right with God. And I think that's where the joy and, and all of that comes from. And that's why he's speaking so boldly. He's not speaking boldly in order to promote his own opinion. He's not doing that in order to, to promote some selfish agenda. He's doing all of that because he cares about them and what's best for them spiritually. But now what you see in repentance, notice the next few verses with me. Verse 8 says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance." For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves... What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Now whether you believe that he's referring to the man that had his father's wife in the first letter, chapter 5, that it appears that now he's repented, or whether he's talking about how some had sued the other and, and took their own brethren to law in chapter 6 of the first letter, there he said to suffer wrong rather than take your issues before an unjust judge. You ought to be able to work these things out among yourself. So I could see why some might think he's talking either about the man that had his father's wife, and I could see how some might. But either way, whoever this is that had repented has made it abundantly clear that they've come clean. And the brethren have come clean on how they handled it. And what we have is a very beautiful picture and a very descriptive picture of what true repentance looks like. I might just look at a couple of things here in thinking about repentance. Repentance is a biblical subject. It's found all throughout that God requires all men everywhere to repent. That's what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17. Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Uh, that was the theme in Acts 2, that those who had crucified the Son of God, they were guilty. 
And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer was, repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We are all human. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all sinned. We've all turned our own way. But yet there is this message that if you will change that behavior, God will forgive. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? That if, and that's what repentance involves. Both the desire, the mind, and the action. Many times we've stated that that's what repentance means. It's a change of your mind that results in a change of action. I think that's true. You see that both the inner attitude and the outer action in this description in 2 Corinthians 8 or 7. First off, notice that it's not just merely feeling sorry. It's not just feeling bad. True biblical repentance is more than that. Oftentimes we do things that, or we have done things that we regret, or we feel guilty, or we feel bad, whether we feel bad that we got caught, or we feel bad that I'm now exposed, that others know and I'm embarrassed, or I feel bad about the circumstances of what I've caused, but you can do all of that. You can feel bad and still not truly repent. And that's one distinction that he makes here in this description in, in 2 Corinthians 7. And he points it out by showing there's a difference between the sorrow of the world and the sorrow or godly sorrow. And when he says the sorrow of the world leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be regretted, well, I, I can think of no, two better, no better example of this worldly sorrow and godly sorrow than looking at Peter and Judas. Judas, when the devil entered him at the supper, Jesus had told him, what you do, do quickly. And Jesus had said, one of you are going to be betray me. One of you is the devil. He also said, It'd been good for that man if he had never been born. Judas knew what he was about to do. Judas knew. But then even after Judas knew and, and, and ignored the warnings that were given, and he went ahead and did it, Judas felt bad about what he had done. If you recall, he goes back when he sees that he's condemned and he sees what's happening to Jesus, he takes the very money that he got. I mean, it would be another subject to say what caused him to betray Jesus. You say it's the greed of money. You could say it was the lack of loyalty. You could say that he lost his lack of focus on spiritual things. You could say that he was selfish. And all of those ways... But yet, after the deed was done, I mean, any, any of us have all 
can look back at any sin we've ever committed and we can say all those things are probably present. That we know it was wrong. Our conscience was telling us, don't do it. We knew better. You know, knowing, knowing something and then doing that is two different things. You can know something is wrong. How many times have we seen there are those who would preach a lesson on something? The lesson might be one of the best lessons we've ever heard. And then the very one that preaches that lesson be guilty of that very thing later. Knowing and doing is two different things. You can know the right thing and not do it. Judas, case in point. And so the knowledge of that, I'm sure, led him to feel guilty for what he had done. So he takes the money and he goes back to, to give it back. I don't want this money. I can't keep it. So something's happening within his mind, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what all was going on in his mind, but you can conclude something's bothering him why he's not keeping the money now. So he goes to give it back, and they won't take it back. They said, you see to that. And then what he does is he takes the money and throws it down in the temple. And, the, and one of the gospel accounts says he repented. Now, that type of repentance is not true repentance. That's not what that means. I think it means he regretted what he had done. He was sorry about what he had done. He felt bad. He felt guilty. He even felt bad about himself to the point that he then went and hung himself. That ought to show you the guilt that he's feeling and the feelings of sorrow that he had. Have you ever done something that after you did it, you're so embarrassed you feel about this tall? Who, who among us is not uh, familiar with that feeling and emotion when you know you're in the wrong? And that's what Judas does. But Judas didn't truly repent. Judas didn't make it right. Judas didn't seek forgiveness. And that's why his worldly sorrow led him to death. And, that, and that's what it will do. If you ha and isn't that sad? You, you could feel bad about your mistakes and you can live in regret of your past to the point where you are, you are stifled, even to the point of maybe giving up, maybe even to the point of hating yourself. Don't ever do that. It's so sad that it had to end that way. Because we look at another example of another man, Peter, who also equally felt bad, but for an entirely different reason, different type of sorrow. When Peter was told he was warned, just like Judas, that he would sin, he was told, you're going to betray me three times before the cock crows. Peter didn't think he would. In his heart or in his words, he said, I'll never deny you. I'll go to death before I deny you. So he intended on doing right. At least it appears that every motive was right. But in the moment, when the mob comes out, at first, Peter's ready to defend him with, with his sword. 
strikes off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus says, they that live by the sword or die by the sword. Put it up. He doesn't understand that Jesus is having to die. And he's telling Peter, I don't need your physical defense. The Lord had all he needed. And yet he didn't use it because this was meant to be. He knew his mission of why he came. And, but later, someone, as, as Peter is following Jesus close by when, and, and he can see him and he sees what's happening because he cares and he's curious of what's going to happen. And in the process of that, there's someone that looks at Peter. You were with him. You were with Jesus. And he denies it. One of these occasions, a, a servant girl says it. And on one of these occasions, he even cursed and said, I do not know the man. And at that third time, the cock crew, and Jesus looked upon Peter. And it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now here we can see someone also that felt bad about what they had done. I'm imagining if I was Peter feeling like I've, I've let the Lord down. I've betrayed him. Maybe, maybe feeling like a coward. The Lord had said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. And here it is, I denied him. The Lord told me to count the cost. And, and, I, didn't, and I didn't pay it in this occasion. The Lord told me to take up my cross and follow him, and I didn't. I followed him afar off, but I didn't speak it. I can imagine these kind of thoughts that might have been going through his head and feeling bad about what he had done. But that's evident later when he goes back to fishing. And he's embarrassed in front of the Lord, maybe because he didn't have his full clothes on when he was fishing. So he put the outer cloak on, jumped in the water. Maybe it was because he was embarrassed about what he had done previously. And when the Lord asked him three times later, do you love me? And he's affirming. And the third time, Peter's grieved. Can't help but wonder, and it makes me contemplate what all was going on in the mind of Peter whenever he's answered that the third time, you know I love you, you know all things. And I know there was the play on the words that, that that's there. I'm aware of that. But I, I also wonder what Peter is thinking that yeah, do we think that? We say, I think I love the Lord. I, I think I would like to believe that I really want to please Him and I want to do what's right all the time, but there are yet some times where I look back on my past and say, there were these times where I didn't live up to that and I don't want to make an empty promise. So there's a sense of honesty and uh trepidation about what we claim and what we say and I think that was probably prevalent in what Peter is saying we don't want to claim that we're a Christian whenever if we're not truly so that you know, we don't want to be a hypocrite but yet there are times when in our best effort 
we still have moments of weakness. Expecting us to always, at every moment, have the most zeal, the most fervor, the most love, the right attitude at all times, is probably not realistic. Why we need to strive for that. Yet we see examples of people who do fall from time to time. And here's, here's an example of that even us, if we do the same, God is still ready and willing to forgive. But Peter's attitude of willing to confess and forsake, and about 50 days later, after he had made those three denials of the Lord, there he is confidently doing what he should have done before. And that is preaching the name of Christ, proclaiming who he is and what he's about and what he came to do, and living by that. So now he's got a chance, you know, and what this teaches me is just because I've failed in the past doesn't mean I have to always fail. Just because I regret my decision at that point doesn't mean I have to make that every time now. Doesn't mean like you're cooked and you're done that you, you, you failed and, that, and that's, that's what you're doomed to do from now on. No, you can change. And it also doesn't mean that after you've repented that you don't have to think that you are having perfect law-keeping every time or all your life after that in order to go to heaven. Because what did Peter do later? I really believe Peter repented. But then sometime later, Paul had to confront him for hypocrisy and fear because he was with the Gentiles, but when the Jews came around, he disassociated himself, caused others to follow along with him. And so now, sometime later, he's found himself in a predicament again because of pressure of people. Again, I've given in. Well, does that mean he didn't repent the first time? Of course not. I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it, what it does show is that you can change your mind with the full intention that you're going to cease the behavior that you know was wrong before God and could still sometime in the future fall to a moment of weakness. But what you do is you repent again. And you get back up again. And you try again. And you know that you're forgiven again. And then with this intention, you're going to try your best not to stumble again as best you can. And I, I think that's what these two uh, people... Uh, show us when we look at that the Judas with the worldly sorrow that didn't didn't change him one bit, but Peter who did and he repented and he was forgiven. Yet that didn't mean he was perfect from now on. And so that gives me hope. But also I, I see here in this description in Second Corinthians eight, both the attitude and actions of repentance as well. And it notice how some of these descriptions that he gives. 
when he says in verse 11, For behold what earnestness this very thing. A, a sincere desire to make it right. But this, the godly sorrow, being sorry for the right reason. Are you sorry that you got caught? Are you sorry that you, there's damage? Are you sorry that others think less of you possibly? Or are you sorry that you've offended the Lord? Which is, is that's the godly sorrow. Is, is sorrow that I broke the Lord's command. Sorrow that I caused the very reason why the Lord died on the cross for me to begin with. And after knowing that, I, I've went and done it again. That kind of sorrow. You know, th that's good and right to feel that way. Sometimes we're worried, and, and Paul makes this point, when I wrote you that letter, I, I don't regret that I made you sorry, even though that wasn't really my intention, just to make you feel bad. It tells me that as, when, when we're approaching our brethren who have sinned, the attitude needs to be right there. That It, it needs to be that we ultimately the, the main thing that we're worried about is that our brothers are right with God. That's our aim. It's not to embarrass. It's not to shame to the point of, of causing them uh, you know, more than necessary discomfort. But at the same time, Paul's not afraid of causing some discomfort if it will cause them to change their behavior. And so that's what that also tells me. Feeling uncomfortable about my sin is a good reaction to have. Something is wrong if I'm so calloused when I know I've messed up and I don't feel bad about it. It doesn't bother me and I can continue doing something that I know the Lord is not happy with and yet it doesn't bother me. Something's wrong. Have I, have I gotten too desensitized to my own sin? Do I see myself as higher than I really am? Am I lessening the effect of what I've caused if I'm doing that? That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is one that truly realizes the damage I've caused. And he says that's what he saw in them. And when he talks about their vindication of themselves or their eagerness to right the wrong, that's, I think that's the idea of what he's saying. They wanted to make it right. That's a godly sorrow. To the point that you don't just say, I feel bad about what I did, but to the point where I want to do something about it. And then I do something about it. Uh, he also mentions the avenging of wrong. The, you know, that is that, you know, sometimes there's a, a if you stole something, give it back. There's a thing called restitution. There's a way of, I want to try to make it up to you if I've wronged you. And he says that their fear and their longing and their zeal, all of that inner qualities, 
that caused them to actually do what was necessary to make it right. And he says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. There is both the inner and outer changes that needs to take place in repentance. If you say, I'm sorry for what I'm about to do, well, that's not biblical repentance. Lord, forgive me for all of my mistakes as I keep on doing them. That's not biblical repentance. That's not what they were doing. It's, I'm sorry, and I'm going to do my best to cease that behavior and do what's right. What, whatever the sin is. And then go to the lengths necessary to make sure. It's also not making justifications and excuses. The idea of someone truly repenting and to do that in the right way, you kind of can't do that if you're looking for some way to say, yeah, I, I know I, I'm sorry, but... Have you have you ever had that happen to you where someone apologizes to you and then they essentially take it back away by telling you, you know, some reasoning of why they did it and then now it sounds like well, you know, at first you sounded like you were sorry, now I'm not so sure how sorry you really were. True biblical repentance is one that doesn't make these kinds of justifications about it. If I'm blaming it upon my birth, my upbringing, blame it on others, blame it on my circumstances or the influence, or I was just having a hard time. Whatever it is that I am using, it's still wrong. <laughs> I, I need to understand that. And true biblical repentance is one that doesn't make those kinds of justifications. But true biblical repentance is one that then takes the action. Let me give you another example. I, I believe this is a very fine example of what true biblical repentance looks like in Matthew chapter 21. What was happening here is you had those who were uh, criticizing Jesus for eating with sinners. And Jesus gives an analogy. He says, there's a man who had two sons. And he tells them both, go work in my vineyard. One says, I will. But he doesn't do it. The other says, I'm not going to do that. But later, he changes his mind, he repents, and he goes. To me, that description right there, he repented and he went. That's true biblical repentance. Now the other one that's claiming it, I'll do it. I'll do it. Who did that look like? That looked like these Pharisees and these religious people of the day who thought of themselves higher than they were. They, they claimed that they were God's people. They claimed that they were sons of Abraham, yet they weren't doing it. You see, claiming that you're going to do it doesn't mean you are. But here's the son who at first is rebellious, and he says, I'm... I'm not going to do that. But he changes his mind. And then he goes and does it. That's the one that repents. And so Jesus is making the point that these harlots and these tax collectors and the sinners that you're criticizing me for 
for for being around. They are more obedient to God than you who are claiming it but not doing it because at least they've changed their mind and they've done it. And so that tells me regardless of your past, whatever you've done, you can be forgiven. And Jesus accepts those who change and then do what they're supposed to do. That's biblical repentance. And that's what we see in the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You've got, a, you've got one son who stays home, but yet he has no attitude of forgiveness towards his brother. He's not accepting the brother that's returned home. He's thinking too highly of himself. I've been here. You didn't sacrifice. You didn't, you didn't kill a lamb for me, or fatted calf for me, rather. You didn't, you didn't throw a party for me. And he's, and he's holding the grudge against the brother who has repented and he's come home. But look at that brother's attitude when he came home. He didn't say, yeah, you know how young people are. They sow their wild oats and that's all I've done. I mean, I've, other people have done worse. That, that was not the prodigal son's attitude. It says he came to himself and he realized how much more do the servants at my father's house have I'll go to my father, and what he does, he goes to his father and he says, I'm not worthy. Now, there's a right attitude. I've messed up. There's no excuses. There's no, there's no justification. There's no blaming it on anybody else, no blame game, but simply, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and you. That was his attitude. But it's so prevalent in what he does too that he comes and he humbles himself he's not demanding he's not I'm here so give me my place back no he realizes he's in need of mercy and that's his attitude that's the proper attitude godly sorrow and then what does the father do father accepts him no shaming but covering the shame, he puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger, throws the party, celebrates, welcomes him with open arms because that's the love of the Father. And that's what God is offering us. That's what Paul is talking about here. This Corinthian church had been turning a blind eye towards sinful behaviors in the church, but then now that the brother has made it right, and after Paul had had to confront it, yeah, that was disc- not comfortable. But they've made it right. Now they're doing the right thing. Paul says, you're clear in the matter. Now there's the point of, of having a sense of comfort and joy. A brother has returned. God is happy. The angels are rejoicing. And so am I, as I, as I need to be. I don't want to be like that older brother who's, who's holding it against him still. You know, sometimes our, we need to recognize that our sins cause damage. And so we need to come to the grips of that damage and try to change our behavior. We need to strive in every way possible not to repeat the behavior because even after we've repented, 
the damage may still be caused in some ways. But there is forgiveness. So let's see the beautiful picture of, of repentance. You can repent. If you've never come to the Lord, I hope you can see that, that we have a God who loves you no matter what you've done. He's not expecting something you can't do. He's not expecting you to be perfect before you come to Him. No, it's His blood that makes you perfect. It's His blood that makes you unblameable, that makes you cleansed and makes you sanctified. And it's His blood that He shed for you for sinners, as was talked about in the earlier sermon. That includes us. We needed that sacrifice. You needed that sacrifice. Why not apply the blood by believing in what He did and repenting? Making a confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. And then there's the celebration. God can be happy. Why not do that? And if you're a Christian and you know the right thing to do, but maybe you haven't done it, and you want to make it right, you can start. One way you can do it, you can come to the front. Confess what you've done. And we're here as ones who are in this, in, in this body of flesh with temptations as you are. We understand temptation just like you. And we're here to help you. And we're here to forgive you and pray with you and help you the best we can. And whatever your need is, please don't hesitate. Don't be like those in the book of Revelation who kept putting off repentance. You don't know how long you have. Why not just repent right now while we stand and as we sing?